been a strange week in politics. With a strange word on the lips of politicians from all parties. On Tuesday, under the headline, Brown and Cameron beg for forgiveness, one political correspondent wrote, sorry became the easiest word to say in a day of apologies over MPs' expenses scandal. I'm not sure it's easy to say, certainly for politicians. In a speech on Monday, the Prime Minister said, I want to apologise on behalf of politicians, on behalf of all parties, for what has happened in the events of the last few days. This has raised some very interesting questions. Not just about the apology itself, but whether one man, even the Prime Minister, can apologise on behalf of politicians of all parties. Surely not all politicians are guilty. And not all politicians are equally guilty. Others, however, think the apology is entirely appropriate because it is the reputation of Parliament itself that is in question. And all members of Parliament share in that damaged reputation. So there is a corporate responsibility and a corporate guilt which calls for a corporate apology. Now, very appropriately today, in our series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, which we've called Restoring the Ruins, we discover that while the ruined walls of Jerusalem, the city of God, are now restored, the ruined reputation of the people of God still remains. And the people of God realize this calls for an appropriate response. What we can describe as corporate confession of their sin before God. And what the people of Israel actually said when they prayed this prayer, led by the Levites, the priestly tribe, is found in the book of Nehemiah, or rather a summary is found. For they prayed like this for three hours. And it is preserved in this book, in the word of God, for our benefit. For if sorry is a rare word for politicians, it is sadly an increasingly rare word for Christians to say in these days. And saying sorry together is an even rarer practice in churches where the word I is found far more frequently than we in our prayers and in our songs. And where praise predominates over penitence. So as we'll see, just as this prayer of penitence was preceded and prompted by the reading of God's word, let's read the scripture which contains it and puts the prayer in its context before we respond to what God says to us through his word in prayer. So then turn with me to Nehemiah 9. Page 493 in the Pew Bibles. Once more, it really is helpful to have a Bible in front of you to follow where we are going with this because it's very important that we follow what the people actually prayed and the situation that they found themselves in. We read the whole chapter. On the 24th day of the same month, The Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. 
Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, three hours, spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God, standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Barney, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Barney, and Kenani, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Barney, Hoshabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham, brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their oppressors, their pursuers into the depths like a stone into the mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down from Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore you didn't desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their way nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them along with their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and 
fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells already dug. Vineyards, olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them. In your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they did again what was evil in your sight. They abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. In your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples but in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them for you are a gracious and merciful God now therefore O God the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes the hardship that has come upon us upon our kings and leaders upon our priests and prophets upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see... We are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave to our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it into writing. And our Levites, our our leaders... Our Levites and our priests are affixing their seal to it. Well, this is God's word for us today. The year when all this took place was, by our later dating, 445 BC. And it was a momentous month for the people of Israel as we read in Nehemiah 6 through to 9. Using our months and dates, let me remind you of what happened. On October the 2nd, the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem was completed after just 52 days. On October the 8th, Ezra the priest stood up and read the law of God before a huge crowd of people assembled in the city of Jerusalem. On October the 9th, the people were sent home to prepare for the Feast of Tabernacles. After hearing in the law of Moses that this festival was due to be celebrated later that month. 
So they celebrated on October the 22nd to 28th the Feast of Tabernacles, recalling the time when they were wanderers, nomads in the desert for 40 years. And the next day, on October the 29th, a solemn assembly was held. And then after a one-day interval, we come to Nehemiah chapter 9, this public confession of sin. Now, there are some scholars who think this chapter is misplaced and that it describes something that must have happened at a different time. Here's their logic and reasoning, which I will explain to you is wrong. Well, I think it is. The reason they suggest this is, if you recall, three weeks before, when the law of God was read on October the 8th, you remember what happened. When the people heard God's law, they began to weep because they realized they had not kept God's law. But Nehemiah and Ezra told them, this is not a day for grieving. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed the people, said, this is a sacred day, don't grieve. So they did what they were told. They stopped crying and they began celebrating. For the next 20 days, they'd spent the time in celebrations. But now suddenly they come to this mourning and confessing of their sin. Surely, these scholars reason, this is out of place. Surely, feasting should follow fasting and not the other way around. But there is no mistake, for the date is stated quite clearly. As wise King Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Now, this day is God's day for his people to weep and mourn. Though it may not be ours, I have to confess as a pastor... If I'd been there on October the 8th when the people started weeping when they heard God's word, I would have struck while the iron was hot. I would have called them to repentance. I would not have sent them home to party. I would have called for commitment immediately. Surely, we ask, it's God's time when his people are moved to tears by his word. To delay, we say, might mean the opportunity is missed. Not necessarily. If the emotion is emotion and nothing more, then it is of no lasting value, for it has no lasting effect. You can weep in God's presence in church on Sunday and go back to sinning on Monday. But if our mourning for our sin is genuine, it will wait for God's time, for we will wait for God's time. We will return to confession because we realize that nothing else will suffice. And that confession, as we see as we come to chapter 9 now, will not be driven by a spur-of-the-moment emotion, but will be carefully planned and prepared. Notice as we come to the prayer, in the opening verse, we see what we can call penitence that is prepared. Did you notice that? On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting... They planned it, not to eat. Wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. They dressed for the occasion. Those of Israelite dissented separated themselves from all foreigners. They'd done what God's word had said. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. Derek Kidner, one of the great Old Testament scholars who, who was called home recently, 
comments. At this turning point in the people's history, the seven-day feast must leave behind it something more durable than a sweet taste in the mouth. The responsive mood must be harnessed to the will And with the realism of that culture, the body and its attire must express the same humbling and sorrow as the words and tone of voice. Now, while we in our culture may not adopt the same attire, we must surely have the same attitude of coming before the Lord in a penitence that is prepared, if like them we're aware of how far short we have fallen of God's law and his word. And this will only happen if, like them, we are reminded how far short we have fallen by listening to God's word. They already first heard this three weeks before when Ezra first read the law. Now they come together again and once more, realizing the problem of their sin is unresolved, they spend three hours listening to the reading of the word of God. I was aware as I read that reading, it was a long reading, wasn't it? I sort of thought to myself, can I maybe cut a bit out here? No. It took me about eight minutes to read it properly. I spent three hours listening to God's word being read, properly explained and translated. See, it's penitence that is also prompted by God's word. They stood where they were and read from the book of the Lord, of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. Now, we don't have time to look at the details, but what I want to say is well worth of study. The prayer that they prayed, almost everything they said, you will find echoes of it in the law of God that they just heard read. Even down to words and phrases. Take just one example that Pip mentioned to the children. Look at verse 17. They say, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, how did they know that? How does anybody in the world who comes before God, as Andrew said, in the jungles of India, for example, how do they pray, Andrew, when they do puja? Well, you imagine what you hope God is going to be like. You think, is this what God is like? How did they know this? How could they be so sure that God was a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love? He, he might be quick to anger and have no love. How did they know it? Well, it's what God revealed about himself. It's actually a quote from the book of Exodus, the second book of the law. And it refers to the incident where Moses returned to Mount Sinai. You remember he smashed the two tablets of the law because the people had broken God's law and committed gross idolatry and immorality. He gets two more tablets of the law and he thinks, what's going to happen here? Will God write his law again or are we finished? And the Lord appeared before Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And here they are, a thousand years later, in very different times, but in very similar circumstances, having committed the same kind of gross sin against the Lord, the priests say, They quote what they've just read in their law. That is why the word and prayer go together. The word comes first. Then on the basis of that word, we respond in prayer. It's the only confidence you can have. It's not showing off when people pray and quote scripture. It can be. (laughs) 
But it is claiming God's promises, affirming what God has said about himself, the everlasting God. He doesn't change. He's faithful. So the promise is what God said about himself in this book, you can rely on when you come to God in prayer. You can't rely on anything else. This applies, I mean, at the time already going, but let me just say about as an aside, it applies on a personal level. Remember times people say to me, I can't imagine that God would be unhappy with me sleeping with Mrs. X because her husband was very unkind to her and she's a very needy person and we love each other madly. Surely God's not in... Surely the God I imagine is going to be... I have no problem with that kind of thing. Then you're reading in God's word and you come to Exodus 20. This is the Lord your God who says you shall not commit adultery. Well, there's no more question. What you imagined is wrong. But supposing having committed adultery, which happens, maybe true of someone here, you're sitting there feeling terribly guilty and you think there's no hope for me whatsoever. And you read on in Exodus 34. God is a forgiving and gracious God. You read 1 John 1 9, it's biblical to the children. You say, there's hope for me. Yeah, I, I've sinned. None of it's imagination. It's based on God's law. The only sure grounds for hope in prayer are what God has revealed about himself, his words and deeds in the past. And this we see as we now turn to the prayer itself. Let's move on. We won't be three hours, but we may be a little late, so don't keep looking at your watch, okay? We, we can only look at the prayer in broad detail. As you know, in the office we collect commentaries and books on everything we preach on. We've got about eight or ten on the man. We just found a new one recently by Charles Swindle, an American, called Hand Me Another Brick. Good title. And... Uh, I've adapted and borrowed, giving credit where credit is due, which I always believe you should do. In this chapter, he talks about, he divides the prayer, and he calls it four-dimensional prayer. Four-dimensional praying, praying in four directions. So I think it's a helpful way to look at it. So look at it with me. Starting where the prayer does, we should first of all be looking upwards. One striking characteristic, I don't know if you noticed when we read this prayer, it's the longest formal prayer in the Old Testament. There are three others, interestingly, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9. If you've got time, look at them. They're all prayers of confession, those three books. But anyway, the focus is almost entirely on God. The word you predominates. There are only two people mentioned by name. And in both cases, God is the subject. You chose Abraham and named him Abraham. You made known your ways and your laws to your servant Moses. We wouldn't have written a history like this. We'd have put all the key people up, you know, as ten most famous people in Israelite history. So the prayer begins naturally with a call to praise the Lord. The priests tell the people to praise the Lord their God who alone is worthy of praise. Verse 5, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. And they go on in their prayer to remind the people, and as it were to remind the Lord, not that it needs reminding, that the Lord their God is sovereign over all. You are the Lord, creator of all. You made the heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. He is the sustainer of all. You give life to everything. The multitudes of heaven worship you. Nehemiah 9 verse 6. So the people who know and have such a God should first and foremost... Join with the worship of heaven in praising him for who he is, regardless of anything else. Instead of looking around them and their desperate circumstances, 
or even looking inwards, first of all, at their guilt and sin, they first need to place all of this in a bigger perspective, like we do in our circumstances, by looking upwards to their God. Uh, Kidner again comments really helpfully. The barely habitable city, the encircling heathen, and the poverty are seeming and seeming insignificance of the Jews are all transcended by the glorious reality of God. The facts are not ignored, as the ensuing prayer will show, but they'll be seen in the context of eternity, everlasting to everlasting, and of God's unimaginable greatness above all blessing and praise. No matter what you've done this morning, no matter what our guilt may be, as a corporate guilt of God's people, we need to start there. And as Christians, we have a different, even greater perspective. The Christian perspective. The Apostle Paul, for example, writing to the Christians in Ephesus says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And what follows is one of the longest Greek sentences in the New Testament. It just goes on and on, listing God's blessings. And he goes on to say that in Christ, as it comes to chapter 2 in Ephesians, the heavenly realms are not just our upward focus, but our present vantage point through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. That's where corporate confession begins with corporate praise. Looking upwards. But as we return to Nehemiah's day and we come to the bulk of the prayer, we see a second dimension, looking backwards. Verses 7 right through to 31. The prayer, as it were, looks back over the history of Israel, picking out particular points. And what you want to see as we read it, you should have seen it as we read it, there is a recurring pattern in the history of Israel. Their history begins with the goodness of the Lord to his people Israel. Right from the start, the prayer records that God showed his kindness to his people Israel, beginning with the fact that he made a covenant with them. You made a covenant with them by choosing Abraham, renaming him Abraham, promising his descendants their own land. Then the story jumps to the time when these people were slaves in Egypt, and God showed his goodness to his people. They say you rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Verses 9 to 12, with mighty acts of power, leading them on their journey in the wilderness with your visible presence. Then en route to the promised land at Mount Sinai, he says, you gave them your law and met all their needs, verses 13 to 15. But at this point in the history, a second theme emerges as we examine the history of God's people, highlighted in prayer, the ingratitude of Israel to the Lord their God. Seen in what they did while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving God's law, the people were already breaking it down below. Addressing the Lord, the priests say, they disobeyed what you told them, verse 16. They ignored what you'd done for them, verse 17. They replaced the leader you had given them, verse 17. They blasphemed against you by making an image of a calf and worshipping it as their saviour and indulging in gross sexual immorality. Now, here's the pattern. The goodness of the Lord to his people, Israel, is met by the ingratitude of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, at this point in history, you stop and say, how will God respond to this? What follows, the goodness of the Lord to his people Israel, the ingratitude of Israel to the Lord their God, how will the Lord respond? What follows? Not what you might expect, not what they deserved, not the rejection of the people of Israel by God as he wipes them from the face of the earth and starts again with Moses, 
But amazingly, once again, we see the goodness of the Lord to his people Israel. For as the priests remind the people and the Lord, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, therefore you did not desert them. Instead, the priests recall, you led them in the desert, verse 19. You gave them your spirit, verse 20. You provided for all their needs, verses 20 and 21. You gave them the land you promised. Truly, it is a history of God's goodness to his people, a goodness that they don't deserve. Yet, once again, what do we see? The same pattern emerges. The ingratitude of Israel to the Lord their God. Verses 26 and 27, the priests say, but in spite of all this, You were so good to them. Look what they did. They rejected your law. They rebelled against your authority. They killed your messengers. They blasphemed your name. And so they experienced your judgment as you handed them over to enemies who oppressed them. And in their need, the prayer records, they cried out to you. What follows? Does the Lord say, look, you've had all your chances. (coughs) Amazingly, once again, they experienced the goodness of the Lord to his people Israel. You gave them deliverers who rescued them. This is the account in the book of Judges. Which you should have read if you're going through the Bible in a year. Yet as soon as they are saved, once more they turn away from the Lord. Once more they seek the Lord's help. Once more the Lord saves them. We see a recurring cycle, verse 28. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. And the prayer continues with the same theme. You warned them, but they turned their backs on you. Verse 29. You were patient with them and they kept warning. You kept warning them. So verse 30, you handed them over to neighboring peoples. Now can you see what they're doing? They're tracing the history of God's people and saying, we are now up to date. Where are they in the cycle? They're ungrateful people. They've been handed over to enemies. The Persians are running the show. So is there any hope for them? As you come to God in prayer this morning, if you failed again and again and again, you say, is there any hope for me? A voice says, no way, you're finished. But their history and what they have learned of the Lord gives them present grounds for hope. Verse 31. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. You're a gracious and merciful God. Now, this is just amazingly good news, is it not? For me, for you, and for Charlotte Chapel. Do not pride yourself in this church. God gave Charlotte Chapel what he deserves. It would be out of existence. A bingo hall or a mosque. It's because God is faithful. The history of Charlotte Chapel is a history of God's faithfulness to his people, despite who we are. So, having looked upwards and backwards, now's the time you look inwards at yourself. Only now. Notice where we've come. Verses 32 to 37. Now, Notice something really interesting that I wrestled with this week, and you may have a different opinion on this, but did you notice uh, that there is one writer on the book of Nehemiah who, who is rather pedantic? He calculates that in the NIV version of this prayer, not in the original Hebrew, I didn't count the words there, there are 1,238 words in the prayer. And don't start counting them now, all right? Do it when you go home. There are 1,238 words in the prayer, and in English, there are only 11 words of one request that they make to the Lord. I wonder after all this what request you would have made to the Lord at this point. 
Very interesting. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. Kind of, what kind of request is that? If you've talked about God and his greatness and his rescue and his miracles and parting the Red Sea, and they say, Lord, don't let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. Why such a request? It's not the sort of thing most people pray when they encounter hardship. Most people say, why does a God of love allow suffering? It's not fair. Or if you believe like the people in Nehemiah's day, in the great, mighty, and awesome God, they ask, why doesn't a God of power stop suffering? There is no question in their minds that if there is such a God, he would do something about suffering, about our suffering, about my suffering. There is no worry in our minds that God would overlook it and say, this is, this is a small thing, trifling. Surely, he ought to take it seriously and do something about it. So we never would pray a prayer like this, do not let this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. That's because we ignore God's justice and minimize our guilt. Unlike the people in Nehemiah's day, who had a proper perspective on their suffering, as they say in their prayer, in all that has happened to us, you have been just, you acted faithfully, while we did wrong. Notice the contrast with what many say, not God is unfair, we are innocent, but God is just, and we are guilty. And notice also when they look back to the time of the Assyrians, 277 years previously, they do not say, they sinned and we're suffering the consequences. My problems are due to what my father did or my grandfather. Or those terrible politicians. No, they identify with their people, past and present. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our fathers did not follow your ways. And we are no different, no better, no less guilty. And so they simply state their present situation. They bring it to the Lord's attention. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our, our sins. None of them were alive when these sins were committed that brought the Babylonians and then the Persians into the scene. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us in Persia. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We're in great distress. See, of course the Lord sees their suffering. He sees everything. But their prayer request concerns how God sees it. The Lord would be fully justified in seeing it as trifling little Nothing to concern himself about, for as they've confessed, it is fully and absolutely justified. So I think that's why they make just simply one prayer request. There is no presumption, just petition. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. It's the kind of prayer that God hears and answers. Because he's a God of grace, who doesn't give us what we deserve. Once you start comparing yourself with other people, you come to God and say, Lord, I'm, I'm, I know I'm not at the top of the curve, but I'm, I think I'm in the pass mark. You know, you ought to do something about my problem. When you understand the depth of your sin and your guilt, and our sin and guilt, you come before the Lord and you seek his grace. 
And here's the wonderful thing. These people prayed on the basis of what they knew from the law of God to the first five books of the Old Testament. We pray on the basis of this whole book, the complete revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And through his son, Jesus Christ, as we did earlier, we're invited to come to God's throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need because only grace will do. If it's a throne of merit, as I prayed, we have no hope. You say to God, Lord, it's a throne of merit. Treat me as I deserve. Boom, you're finished. And a puff of smoke, if God were just. But that's where you start when you come as a, to Christ for the first time. You come to the cross. It's a low ground at the cross. It's level ground. And you simply pray and say, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply, to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for grace. Dress helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul lie to the fountain fire. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So have you ever been there? Or do you think I'm a good guy? Better than most. And those terrible politicians. Never cheated. What do we think about ourselves as a church? Oh, where's Charlotte Chapel? We always come to the cross. That's why we break bread around the Lord's table, not just individually, but corporately. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We who also repay God's goodness with ingratitude, we also disobey his word and ignore his warnings. We also experience the Lord's chastening because he loves us when we suffer the consequences for our sin. Yet we, like them, can experience his forgiveness and restoration if we simply say, you are just, we are guilty. And pray, do not let this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. Have we done that? Will we do that? If so, our prayer will head in the fourth and final direction, looking forwards, verse 38. Having made their confession, they follow it with commitment. Commitment always follows confession. If it's genuine. Otherwise, it's like Pip said, children sometimes say, say you're sorry, sorry, and go off and do it again. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. This is a solemn moment. We're going to do something about it from now on. Now, next week, God willing, Colin will be looking at chapter 10 and the nature of that commitment. We won't spend any other time on it. But note in summary, they committed themselves to a new path of obedience to the Lord and his word. It's the only kind of commitment that brings about lasting change which pleases the Lord. So let me finish by returning to where we began with the question of corporate confession. Was Gordon Brown justified in apologizing on behalf of all politicians of all parties? Yes, I think he was. All share in that damaged reputation. There is a corporate responsibility and a corporate guilt which calls for a corporate apology. But I believe there's another danger that really worries me when all this stuff comes out. This whole scandal. They look at the polls and say all the population of Britain are really angry and upset with them. We all universally condemn them. How could they do such a terrible thing? Abusing the system. Should do better. Should know better. Set an example. Another danger is... It obscures our own failings and our own sins. And it makes us all feel a little bit better because we're better than them. 
the diagnosis of God's word is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, we're all guilty before God. Unless we acknowledge that or hide behind the excuse that we're not as bad as some of these MPs or others we might name who live closer or in our family, we can never experience the forgiveness that is offered to us in the gospel of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What about those of us who by God's grace have been forgiven and reconciled to God? We now belong to the people of God. And we share in its joys and triumphs and its sorrows and failures. What, for example, is our response to the awful crisis facing the Church of Scotland at this present time? Is it their concern? No, it is our concern. should prompt our prayer. Does the state of the church in our land call for corporate confession? Does the state of our land call for corporate confession? Is the corruption that we see caused in part, maybe in good part, because we have failed to be the salt of the earth, as Jesus said? Is the darkness that we bewail in our land partly caused, largely caused, by the fact that we've failed to be the light of the world and have hidden away in our little ghettos. In his book on Nehemiah, last quote, Revival in the Rubble, good title, John Kitchen writes, we have a pronoun problem. What happens when you hear of another person's sin? Do you say, what an idiot? Or do you cry out in anguish, not only for them, but also for us? Have you ever stopped to pray? God forgive us. We have sinned. Sin is worse than we think. Because it is, confession must go deeper than we think. May God help us. Let's sing a hymn which really is a confession.